This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. I have been studying the, the Ten Paramitas the virtues of an enlightened being. And I had planned to talk about renunciation, paramita. And then the attacks happened. And I, I still want to talk about it, but with a, with a slightly different focus. Um, you know, the, the, the characteristic of these paramitas, of these virtues, is to benefit others. Their function is to offer help without hesitation. Their manifestation is the wish that all beings attain Buddhahood, attain enlightenment. And their proximate cause or their root is great compassion and skillful means. And the, the traditional definition of renunciation, Paramita, is uh, it was really in a monastic context. So it was a renunciation of sense pleasures, renunciation of, of existence, of the desire to, to be, but also renunciation of lay life and all of its responsibilities. And this was with the recognition that it was more difficult, not impossible, more, more difficult to, to realize oneself. But when I was looking at the word itself uh, from the Latin, renunciare, it means to protest against. And so when you think even, you know, when we take a moment of silence like this, which really transcends religion, right? We, we, we do this in the face of something so um, large and difficult and painful. And what we're doing in, in a moment like that, I, I think at least part of what we're doing is protesting against our busyness, protesting against uh, our momentum and our activity and saying this requires something different. This is important enough that I need to stop and bear witness in any way that I can. And so protesting, you know, renunciation, protesting against or, or taking a stand Against what? Myself, really, fundamentally. That's, that's what it is. Because the self is not what I think it is. As I said to some of you when we were doing beginning instruction in Zazen, it feels solid, you know, and after all, here I am, and it feels uh, very real and very um, intractable at times. And yet, as you begin to practice, and certainly the more you practice, the more you realize, first of all, it's not what I think it is. Second of all, it doesn't need to be shored up. It's, it's like propping up fog or water, which is foolish in a way, and yet this is what we spend our entire lives doing, fighting for this self and its beliefs, its opinions, its preferences. And in a small scale, it just looks like self-centeredness. 
in a large scale, it looks like war. So renunciation is to protest against the, the autocracy of the self, what I, what I like to call the empire of me, declaring a coup, a peaceful coup against the status quo. And, you know, and it's not even the status quo. That's, that's what's um, paradoxical about it. There, there's no one on the throne, you see. We march you know, here and there to imaginary orders. We pay a tithe. Actually, it's much more than just 10% of our income. The, the cost of the, the self, the empire of me, is much higher than that. And all along, it's, just, it's the reverse of the emperor's clothes. All the clothes are there. There's no emperor. There's nobody wearing them. And it starts so early. That's the thing. I mean, it, it probably is it's be, beginningless. But, you know, we were working with the kids yesterday. We had a family retreat. And it's sobering, I have to say, to see how early this is mine. You know, this is me. This is mine. No, I don't want this. How early it starts. And in a way, there's, there is no way around it. But how I wish there was. You know, when I have a three-year-old in front of me, a four-year-old in front of me, and I want to say, this is going to be really hard. <laughs> Just start right now. It's going to be really hard. <laughs> and of course, you know, you can't. You have to let them be a three-year-old. And in the other way, I mean, you know, you can't, you can't let go of what you don't have. So there is all the work, those of you who are parents know, all the work of building up, cultivating a healthy, a strong sense of self. So hopefully one day they'll be able to release it. They'll see the need to release it. So we do make these buildings, these castles out of fog. But it's still fog. So sooner or later we have to see that. Because if we don't, we suffer. This is our world. And we wonder, we wonder, why does it have to be so hard? And it doesn't. It doesn't. That is what the Buddha saw. It doesn't have to be this hard. It doesn't have to be what we're seeing day after day. And if one human being realized it, all of us can. We were asking the, the kids before and, and up at the monastery and Zen kids, um, we're actually talking about truth, but we, we asked some of them, you know, did you dress up for Halloween? And they said, of course. And one of them said she dressed up as a princess's kitty. So not, not just any kitty, a princess's kitty. It was very specific. And we said, well, so when you were the princess's kitty, where was Ebby? And she just looked at us. And I said, you know, so right now, who are you? And she said, well, I'm Evie. I said, well, so where's the kitty? She's like, it's gone. I said, but where did it go? I said, which one is the true you? (laughs) You have to start them early, like I said. (laughs) You know, when you wake up in the morning and you have a bad dream and you're kind of out of sorts, is that you? And then, you know, you go to work and your boss tells you you got that promotion. Now you're delighted, you're thrilled. Is that you? What happened to the one who was out of sorts? You go on the subway, and you're, you're not looking where you're going, and you, um, you know, somebody 
bumps into you and they call your name and now you're insulted, you're hurt. Is that you? What does it mean, really, to renounce your sense of self, which you have been building so carefully all this time? It doesn't mean what we think it means. It doesn't mean to negate the self, because that's already, that's already too much. That's already too active. It's seeing the self for what it really is. And seeing, I feel, is the, the key word here. So what if we think of renunciation as protesting anything that gets in the way of that clear seeing? Renunciation of noise, of distraction, of my self-centeredness, my self-serving thoughts, self-doubt, arrogance, greed, fear, laziness, harshness, the need to control myself or the environment. I was reading a talk by Ajahn Chah, who was a a Theravadan teacher in the uh, Thai forest uh, tradition. And uh, he was well-known later because he was also Jack Kornfield's teacher, and um, his his teachings were translated. And and he was a very uh, powerful, very unusual teacher. And I was reading this talk where he was talking about dharma fighting. And so he says, fight greed. Fight aversion, fight delusion. These are the enemy. In the practice of Buddhism, the path of the Buddha, we fight with dharma using patient endurance. And, you know, if you just read it, especially if you, if you just read that or you read it out of context, it sounds harsh. And what's all this talk about fighting? But he was a very gentle teacher, actually. And yet he was very direct. My favorite uh, quote by him is... Um, if you have a little peace, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will be free. So he wasn't harsh, but he was uncompromising. Like um, another one of, of Jack Cornfield's teachers, Deepa Ma, who once said to Joseph Goldstein, well, you should sit for two days. And he realized that what she meant was you should take your seat and stay there for two days. Don't move. You know, do a period of zazen. They didn't call it zazen. But sit for two days, for 48 hours. And he said, but I can't. And she just said to him, don't be lazy, and walked away. She wasn't having it. And she was a a lay uh, teacher. She had a little apartment in, in... Calcutta, I believe. And, you know, people would always complain to her, her lay students, which is all the students she had, they would say, well, I don't have time. I don't have time to practice. I'm raising kids. You know, one of them was a baker, and so he was working all the time. And she said, well, do you have two minutes? And the baker said, well, yes, I have two minutes. She said, two minutes of practice right there. And Ajahn Chao, you know, so... Here he's saying, you know, that that there is such a thing as fighting dharma. But look at his definition of fighting. You know, he says, dharma and the world are interrelated. Where there is dharma, there is the world. Where there is the world, there is dharma. Where there are defilements, there are those who conquer defilements, who do battle with them. This is called fighting inwardly. 
to fight outwardly, people take hold of bombs and guns to throw and to shoot. They conquer and are conquered. Conquering others is the way of the world. In the practice of Dharma, we don't have to fight others, but instead conquer our own minds, patiently enduring and resisting all our moods. So patiently enduring and resisting all our moods. We renounce them. We protest against them. We're saying, you know, you're not in charge of me. You're not the boss of me. You greed, my anger, my ignorance, my self-hatred, my ill will, my annoyance. You are not in charge of me. And it is absolutely true that we need to take all of it in, that we need to make friends, as some teachers say, make friends with those less savory aspects of ourselves, our demons. But I was reflecting on it. I don't think I would use the word, the term, make friends. I would say that you have to face your demons with great respect and dignity because they're there. They are real. They're true. But you don't have to like them. You, know, you don't have to like your pettiness, for example. You do have to see it clearly. You don't have to like it. In fact, you know, if you don't like it, you're more likely to do something about it, to change it, to protest against it. And it's, it's no longer okay for me to act this way. At that moment when there's that, there's that uncomfortable time when it's too painful to continue the way you have been, but you don't know any other way. And so that period of time is actually quite difficult because you feel the need to change, but you don't know how. But I feel that that moment when you say, this, is, this needs to change, this is no longer okay, that's the moment of turning. And you don't actually need to know what it will look like. You just take the next step. And because you're practicing, the next step, the, the ground meets you, I think as Shugen Sensei often says. And then you take the next step. But what about when it's someone else's demons, their darkness? And this is when we realize that practice isn't make-believe. You know, it's not just doing spiritual exercises that don't have a relationship to, to real life, to suffering. It's, in fact, going very deeply into ourselves to recognize what can be painful, but it's actually unavoidable because it's true that we're all capable of great delusion, which at a, a dime can turn into violence. And no, you know, we might not plant a bomb. We might not go in and shoot indiscriminately. But that, that, that seed of delusion, of separation, of fear, of hatred is, is there, is present. You know, that's why we call greed, anger, and ignorance are the three poisons. But there's the other side. Every single one of us also has the antidote, the seeds of compassion, wisdom, and enlightenment. And why do we choose one over the other at any moment in our lives? You know, when something, when something like what happened in Paris happens, it just it makes it very real. It just it brings it to the fore, and it's right in your face. You can't ignore it. And in that way, 
it's, um, we can't ignore it. So it's a moment of teaching. It's a moment that just wakes you up. Whether you're, you know anybody who was there, whether you could have been there yourself, it's a moment that says, wait a second. Are you really just going to go along like you always have? It makes you stop. And each one of us, according to our karma, will live out, will make choices, will make different choices. And according to our clarity, our wisdom, according to how we understand ourselves, how we understand each other, what we are able to see at any given time. And so Ajahn Chah speaks of uh, sati, a shmirti in Sanskrit, and it's mindfulness, really, which, you know, now mindfulness has become so popular, it's like you can tie your shoes mindfully. Um, but it's, it's really the, the ground, it's the basis of... Um, Clear seeing, because without it, not much can happen, actually. And Ajahn Chah says, you know, that without sati, without mindfulness, you're crazy. So five minutes of no mindfulness, five minutes you're crazy. And we spend years of our lives this way. And, you know, and we don't have to stretch very much. I mean, if we really, if we really take, take it in, you know, those, those moments in our day when we just... We do go a little crazy, you know, whether it's, it's with worry, with anxiety, with fear, or just we, we get very narrow, very, very self-absorbed in those moments of what then become inattention. You know, I went for a run the other day, and out of five people that I passed on the road, four were walking with their phone. And I constantly had to be swerving, you know, people with their phone. And I have my opinions about this technology, but uh, it's not making it easier, I don't think, for us to pay attention. All the apps, notwithstanding, is not making it easier for us to actually be where we are. And so without it, it the odds are stacked. <laughs> the odds are stacked and in in not in our favor. But then we do this. And we do this. You know, those of you who just started, you know, just received instruction today. It would not be an exaggeration to say that it is the most powerful way that you'll find to look at your mind. And there are other ways. I guess that's, it's my opinion that I haven't found a more powerful way to look at my mind clearly. Which is exactly what mindfulness is, to know ourselves, our minds clearly. And that is why we uh, place so much stress on the stillness and the silence in Zazen, so that we can see, so that we can hear, so we can feel completely, so that we're not cut off from our lives, from each other. I recently, in another talk, I quoted Annie Dillard, um, Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek, and she has a really nice section on seeing. And I, I found a little bit more because, you know, when somebody's gift is the gift of words, you want to quote them as much as possible. She says, All I can do is hush the noise of useless interior babble. 
that keeps me from seeing just as surely as a newspaper dangled before my eyes. The effort is really a discipline requiring a lifetime of dedicated struggle. It marks the literature of saints and monks of every order, east and west, under every rule and no rule, decalced and shod. She could also have said bald and with hair. And it is a struggle, she says, a lifetime of dedicated work. It's a fight, Ajahn Chah says. You know, and it sounds kind of heavy. It sounds kind of difficult. And it isn't really, not in the doing, but it is a lifetime of dedicated work. I mean, if it wasn't, we would all be enlightened, and this would be a different world. And yet you cannot make yourself see. You can only lay the ground. You can only quiet the interior babble. You can only grab the newspaper and gently and firmly by the corner and just flick it so it's not in front of your eyes. How in, in, the, in the spiritual literature, across traditions, all the images of seeing, of light, of illuminating what is dark, Daido used to say, you, you take off the blinders, you set down the pack. And it is, in fact, seeing what was always there, but was invisible, behind a veil, behind that fog, which at times of great suffering feels more like a wall, impenetrable, unscalable. But it isn't. And Dillard says, one day I was walking along Tinker Creek thinking of nothing at all, and I saw the tree with the lights in it. I saw the backyard cedar where the morning doves roost, charged and transfigured, each cell buzzing with flame. I stood on the grass with the lights in it, grass that was holy fire, utterly focused and utterly dreamed. It was less like seeing than being for the first time seen, knocked breathless by a powerful glance. The flood of the fire abated, but I'm still spending the power. There are these moments in practice that are like that, and they can be quite dramatic, a moment of very clear seeing. And some of them are very, they're small, but they're, and in a way you could say very ordinary, and yet something completely shifts. That moment when for the first time you see the food in your bowls during orioki. You've been eating food all your life, and you realize you have never actually seen a bowl of rice until that moment. Not really. And there's, there's the amazement in this, and there's a little bit of sadness, I think, realizing all the things that you've missed over the years. But also joy, that you don't have to. You don't have to anymore. Now you have a way to see. You have a practice. You have your breath, you have a koan, a question, you have that naked study of your mind, shikantasa, open awareness. You have a way to enter when you're tired, when you're distracted, when you're getting dull, when you're getting complacent, you're falling asleep again. You have a way to enter. So to do this work is to renounce anything that keeps us apart, that keeps us afraid, that keeps us angry. We protest against our endless stories and lay them to rest.
I love a good story when it's time for a good story. But I love silence, too. And we need it. We need that silence. Otherwise, we can't hear. And stories can liberate, but they can also bind. And I can guarantee you, you know, that the, that the young men who were involved in the attacks, who perpetuated the attacks, were convinced of the rightness of, the, of their decision, the goodness of their actions. And how is that possible? Right? We look at it from the outside. How is that possible? But have you ever talked yourself into something that you realized years later was actually completely self-serving? I mean, now that you're seeing it, it didn't even make sense back then. It, 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 even back then, it didn't make sense. But in the moment, in the moment, it makes perfect sense. And we actually, we'll, we'll make sense of almost anything to get what we want. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. So you see, you're, we're always really at the threshold and limited by what we can see. Unless we assume, unless we truly, truly um, take to heart that there's always more that I can see, that is possible, that, that I should be suspicious of what I know now. I should assume that there's more than I can see. And if that's the case, then it's just a matter of time, of practice and time. I renounce my right to remain fixed in my views, to keep my focus narrow and limited, we're effectively saying when we practice. I renounce my right to fall asleep when I get uncomfortable. I renounce my right to spend my time building myself up or tearing me or you down. I renounce the impulse to give away my power and to let things happen to me. I renounce to let things happen to me. In other words, to be a victim of my life, of circumstances. You know, at a time, you know, in our, in our order, where things have changed. You know, Shugan Sensei used to live here. And he doesn't now. And things changed, and he had to respond. And it's easy. Uh, it's easy to feel abandoned. You know, like we're the, the neglected child the second child. And, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't say this himself, but I will. Abandoning you is the last thing in his mind. I mean, if he, if he could be in two places at once, he would be. If he could be everywhere at once, doing everything at once to take care of all that needs to take, be taken care of, of all beings that need saving, he would. He would. He does. So it's true, he's not here so much anymore. But you are. A friend of mine said that her her son was uh, having a hard time and he was in Germany. He was feeling depressed. And she said, go help someone else. And so um, he did. He volunteered for the Red Cross to work with people. He's a social worker. To work with people who um, uh, were victims of domestic violence in the camps, the refugee camps, Syrian refugee camps. And within a month, he'd been hired <laughs> to do the job. And so he's doing that. And he's completely changed, turned his life around. And so, you know, for those of us 
who've made a commitment to this order, to this path, this place is here for us, absolutely. But there's also every single person who's going to walk by, you know, on, on the street and, and look over and think, oh, the Sense Center, I wonder what that is. And maybe we'll walk through the door like some of you did this morning. Every person who thinks, you know, I may want to try to sit down, be quiet for a little bit, look at my mind. And our vow is to be here for them, too. To open the door, to show them how to sit, to clean the bathroom, clean the zendo, do a little liturgy, give them some food. Our, our job is to say in every possible way that we can, yes, there's a place for you. I always think it's so anticlimactic, the Saturday night sit. You know, we've done a full day, especially if you've done a retreat, you're kind of tired, and you know it's mostly going to be the residents. And then two people show up on a Saturday night to sit. And I realize, okay, right, that's why I'm here. That's why we've asked you to participate in the liturgy training, because we need you. I mean, it's nice every once in a while to do all the positions. You know, you do makugya, you do dawn, you do the chanting. <laughs> it's fun, but not all the time. And we need you to do this. The half-day sits, the zazankai, uh, we need you to make the liturgy happen, to show up, as Miyotai Sensei used to say, to show up and give of yourself without hesitation. Because that is the function of a bodhisattva, practicing the paramitas, the virtues of an enlightened being. And, you know, and sometimes practice feels daunting and our heads are so full and, and noisy and there is so much suffering out in the world. So peace, let alone enlightenment, it feels so far away. But, you know, this isn't theoretical. This isn't abstract. It's not zeni or dramatic. The, the dramatic moments of seeing notwithstanding. Years ago, I, I, I came in for my week here, and Shugan Sensei had just come up from downstairs. He'd been doing the laundry, the temple laundry. And he was carrying the, the compost worms pee in a tray. So he's walking around with a tray. I took it from him. You know, he's the abbot of the temple. And back then, he wasn't yet the head of the order, but he would be soon. And he's walking around with a worm pee because he will do whatever he needs to to take care of what needs to be taken care of. And that's really what it is, just human beings, you know, taking care of one another, just picking up a little trash on the street, helping to wash the dishes after a meal, sitting down and talking to someone you've never talked to. This is how we wake up, and we wake up ourselves, and we wake up others. And to not, not um, forget, you know, in these, in these, these moments, uh, you know, because things happen in the world all the time, but there's these moments where it just feels, oh, it's a little closer, it's just a little closer. Not let, once it passes, you know, you don't have to be walking around depressed. Hopefully you don't. But to not let it... Um, Put you back to sleep. Do not just go back to sleep. Not go in automatic again. There's this urgency of a human life, the gift that we see that, that we've been given, that we have this body and we have this mind, that we can wake up, in fact. 
to not forget, not take it for granted. May all beings have happiness and the root of happiness. May they be free of suffering and have and the root of suffering. May they never be separated from boundless joy, which is free of suffering. And may they live in perfect equanimity, which is free of desire or aversion. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.